We're in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and it says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the question is, who do you think is more likely to turn to Jesus? Is it someone who is in their 20s? Or is it someone who is maybe a little over 20? Is it, is it a rich person or is it a poor person? Is it a drunk person or is it a sober person? Is it a person who is living with their boyfriend or someone who has never even dated? Is it a person who just loves breaking the rules, breaking the mold, doing whatever it is that they want to do, or is it someone who loves following the rules and even enforcing the rules? Is it a, a Jewish person? Or is it someone who would call themselves an atheist? You know, there are some people who you might think would never come around. Oh, you, you might say a prayer for them every once in a while, but you aren't waiting on any miracles here. There are other people who you might be tempted to just wish that God would just take out with one of those laser-guided bombs. Such was the case with a man named Saul. We talked about him a little bit several weeks ago. He's a man who stood there while uh, the first people, the witnesses, were picking up stones and they were hurling them at this man, this man of God named Stephen as he was being executed. And Saul was there, and he is guarding the coats. According to Acts 8.3, he's the one who dedicated his life. 
He had a life mission, life purpose. You know what it was? It was ravaging the church in Jerusalem. And he's going door to door. He's making calls, house calls, making inquiries. He's on a mission to seek and destroy anyone who claimed to be a part of this Jesus movement. This is a man people ran away from. It's a man who you hoped you never saw when you pulled back the living room curtains. <laughs> this is a man whom all your friends were talking about. In fact, the man who you're, they're probably blaming most of the problems of their life on this man. This is a man who you would never even think of being friends with. And this is the man that Dr. Luke draws our attention to to display the awesome unpredictable, patient, and transformative power of God. Saul himself would later write to his young protege, Timothy. He would say that God showed him mercy to display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if God can save Saul... There is absolutely no one beyond his power to say, who are out there whom you look at and identify as being too far gone? Who are they? They've, they've done too much. There's, there's not a chance. They're like Shakespeare's Macbeth. There's too much blood on their hands that even all of Neptune's ocean is not great enough to wash clean. And who's out there who looks at your own life and says, I can't do it. He won't do it. God doesn't want me too far gone. The message today, of course, is very, very simple. If God can save Saul, he can save anyone. And in the time we have left together, I'd like to give you, pull out four evidences from Paul's experience, his conversion, his turnaround, that give us reason to believe that. The first is this, it's that Saul's turnaround, it's dramatic, isn't it? And verse 1 said, Saul, still breathing threats, still breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest and he asks for these letters so that he might have permission to go find these Christians that were out there and bring them to justice. Saul was an interesting guy. He was born in the Roman province of, of Sicilia. Uh, in the city of Tarsus, a seaside town, and he was automatically a Roman citizen. But his father was actually Jewish. His father was also a Pharisee, and that means that he was part of that Jewish squad whose members prided themselves on their uh, near-perfect observance of the law. They were the examples to everyone else. And Paul, Paul, uh, Saul, like his father, what became this model Jewish uh, person, citizen. Not only that, he received the finest education from the most prestigious scholar of the day. And that, that guy was Gamaliel. And since he was a Greek speaker, he, he, he was one of the Hellenists. 
That means it's very possible. Remember, we talked about Stephen weeks ago, how he was debating. The Hellenists were debating with him about this Jesus guy. Saul may have been one of those guys who was debating with Stephen. But because Saul didn't know Jesus, didn't understand Jesus, didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of him, he's no, he was no match for Stephen's wisdom like we find in Acts 6.10. You might think of Saul as, as kind of an up-and-comer. When I was in high school, there was one student in my high school, in, in one of my, actually, I think he was an aide in one of my class, in my AP biology class. This guy was so brilliant that he had not only the FBI, but the CIA knocking on his door, not to arrest him, but to recruit him. He was, he was a prodigy. This guy, they had identified, this guy is brilliant. Saul may have been something like that. If not a prodigy, at least top-tier material, you know? But after Stephen's execution, Saul found his life's passion, his life's mission, he, it, what he's placed on this earth for. And that was hunting down and destroying the lives of the followers of the way. That's what it was called, the way being Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, his mission to rid the planet of these people. And it became so much of an obsession with him, it's just like every breath that was coming out of his mouth was, was about this, was breathing this. He's kind of like Tolkien's character, Gollum. And he's got the little ring, and he just can't stop looking at it, and he says, my precious Saul was obsessed. Back in chapter 8, we read about how Christians, they're leaving town. They're scattering to the provinces of Judea and, and Samaria. But Saul wasn't satisfied with just clearing the town with them. No, he had to go after them. He had to pursue them. And so he hunts down these Christians. Verse 1 tells us these breathing threats, rounding up Christians. This, this is not a, a casual thing. It's not, it's not a hobby. It's not, he's not, not like building model trains here. In Galatians 1.13, he describes himself this way. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is a man who, even though he didn't see it, passionately opposed to God and his people, passionately opposed to Jesus and his church. Who would have ever thought that a person like this could turn around and become an advocate for the very thing he hated? Friends, in a world that's increasingly divided, increasingly choosing sides, where people more, more, uh, more blatantly than any other point in our lifetimes expressing their outright hatred for those who would say, we're going to submit to this thing we call God's word. In that world, it's not very difficult for us to identify who we might think are the most unlikely people to turn around, to trust in Jesus, right? If I asked you to name 10 of them, you'd probably do boom, 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 boom. Those people, they would never, never turn around. And yet, Saul's dramatic transformation, it's a reminder to us that God's, 
God's power is able to transform even his most dedicated opponents. This is a dramatic turnaround. Not only is it dramatic, Saul's turnaround was completely unexpected. Sometimes we can look back on our lives and we can see how we were being prepared for something, right? And and maybe a couple looks back on their history and they realize, hey, we met, actually. You know, we met when we were kids. Melissa and I actually met when we were kids. Her family visited my church and I was uh, uh, the oldest of a family of, at the time, maybe like five kids. And she was the oldest of a family of maybe four or five kids, too. And I remember they lined us up in front of the church. Meet this family. We're a family of all boys. Here's a family of all girls. And we went, hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. See you later. You, some people can look back on their history and they can say, yeah, we met when we were kids. You know, we, we went to the same school. We, we talked to each other from time to time, went to the same camp or this or that. We be, gradually, we began to take an interest in one another. And, you know, so the story goes. But then there are others, right, who have had no previous connection whatsoever. And one day they randomly find themselves making eye contact and that's it. It's, just, it's, it's over. They're, they're done for, right? He's the one. She's the one. And the rest is just history. Saul wasn't one of those guys that a, that a Christian would look at and say, you know, that guy, you see, he's coming around. Someday, someday, he's going to realize it's, it's going to click. I see the path that he's on. He's going to trust in Jesus. No way. That's not this guy. He's the sworn enemy of the Christian faith. Even as he stood there witnessing Stephen being executed, even as Stephen looks up to heaven, remember what Stephen said. He said, Father. He said, no, he said, Jesus, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Even as all of that was happening, Saul is completely unmoved. Completely unmoved. In fact, we, we read in Acts 8.1, Saul approved of his execution. He's standing back. Yeah, this is good. This is good. When, you know, yeah, this guy's getting what he deserves. If you were to try to determine the likelihood of this guy turning around to Jesus, it'd be something like a billion to one. It's just not going to happen. Are there people in your life who you might identify and say, not a chance? You've looked for glimmers of hope, right? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend. And you, you so want to see a sign that maybe there's a path, there's a trajectory here that God is leading them to himself. And hard as you try, it's just not there. All you see is just a steady, in fact, ever-thickening darkness. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Because God can do the absolutely unthinkable and turn lives around that have not even taken the tiniest baby step towards him. Saul's turnaround was completely unexpected. No one saw it coming. Saul certainly didn't see it coming. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going to round up some Christians. There was no alert on his phone that said, chance of blinding light at noon today. Chance of voices from heaven. No, none of that. Ananias didn't expect it. 
when God speaks to him about uh, what he's to do for Saul. He says, sounds like a plan, God. I got this. I'm your man. I'll do it. No. He objects, doesn't he? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Even after his turnaround, people that he encounters, they cannot believe it. People in the synagogue, they say, is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? When, when Saul goes to Jerusalem, the Christians can't believe it. No way, they say. Verse 26, they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was the disciple. No way. Completely unexpected. That tells us don't lose hope. God's call to shake people to their senses can be fast and furious. Totally unexpected, and all of a sudden, that's the way it was for Saul. Thirdly, his turnaround, this is all God. It's all God. There is nothing in Saul's conversion that anyone but God can take credit for here. Verse 3 says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, suddenly... A light from heaven shone around him. According to, to Paul's later accounts, that was noon. That happened at noon. This unnatural, blinding light, it throws him to the ground. Now, I've, I've seen blinding light this morning. When I pulled out of my driveway, the sun was just rising, and I could not see. I was dri driving like super slow down the street because I couldn't see anything. But you know what? As, as bright of light that I've, I've ever seen in my life, I've never been thrown to the ground. This, this was not natural here. Verse 4 says, falling to the ground, he hears a voice. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He, he, does, he doesn't say, hey, who, who's that? Who's that? No, no, he automatically assumes this could only be a God experience here. I'm having an experience with divinity. It's unmistakable. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And as he looks at that light, he sees a figure. We know this from later accounts. Acts 9, 17, 22, 14, 26, 16, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. That the figure is none other than Jesus. Obviously, Saul had done nothing to deserve this. It wasn't as if uh, God looked down on him and said, You, Saul, I've identified you. You know, I've been searching everywhere. Finally, I found someone worthy to be my servant here. It's, it's not that. I choose you, Saul. No, not that. On the contrary, he says, Why are you persecuting me? Of all the accusations that you do not want to have laid at you, <laughs> it's God saying, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? Uh, 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 <laughs> the attacks that Saul was bringing upon Christians, Jesus tells him, were attacks on himself. Of course, Jesus can say that, 
absolutely truthfully because these Christians had been filled with the Spirit of God. And so they're walking around as, 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 as these bodies encasing God himself, and they are representing God as they go. They're doing his work. They, they're sharing his message to the world. They're making his name known. Why are you persecuting my church? No, why are you persecuting me? Because I am the church. Church, you are filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, if your trust is in him, that's powerful. You know, Saul wasn't like the Ethiopian that we read about uh, two weeks ago or so. He wasn't searching for God. You remember he was in his chariot, he's reading Isaiah? It's not like that. On the contrary, Saul, he thought that he was doing God's work as he was out there serving these warrants and rounding up Christians. In Acts 23, it says, he lived his life with a clear conscience. Everything I, everything I did in life, it, I, my conscience was clear. I thought I was doing right. He thought he was totally doing the right thing. I'm serving God as I'm hunting down these blasphemers, these bad people, these Jesus followers here. He's totally clueless. He thought he was on the right side of history. He thought he was on the right side of God. He thought he was on the right side of everything. So it's not like he could say, yeah, you know, uh, I thought about becoming a Christian. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about it here and there. No, he didn't think about it at all. There was nothing in him, not even the faintest flicker of light. And the blinding light that threw him to the ground, it blazed in stark contrast to the darkness of his heart. Notice also that it doesn't say Jesus asked him to believe, does it? And this is all God. He just tells him what he is to do. He gives him orders. Saul, you're going to do this. Report to town. <laughs> Wait for my leading. He says, rise, enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. There are no ifs, ands, or buts here. Saul's being called. He is being told. Did he really have a choice? Doesn't really seem like it. How can you resist the sovereign call of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And if that wasn't enough, Jesus later says to Ananias in verse 15, we already read it, that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Who's in charge here? Who chooses who here? It's all God. God had Saul's number. He had chosen him to be the one who would carry his name. He knows exactly what he has in store for Saul's future. Does God know what's going on with you? Does he know what's in store for you? Does he know the plans that he has for your life? Way back in Jeremiah, God said of Israel, I know the plans I have for you. I know. Do you know? I know. 
plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Yes, he knew exactly what he had in store for Israel. He knew exactly what they were going to do and, and, and the, the interaction that they were going to have and the results of all of it. What plans does he have in store for you? I don't know exactly. I wish I did. I don't. But I do know that if your trust is in Jesus Christ, he is your Savior, he is your Lord, it ends well. Very well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Set your sights on the hope that lies ahead. Be faithful to your king. He's going to take you where he wants you to go. That's a little nerve-wracking. But remember, you're in very good hands. And he's going to bring you home in the end. And also, don't lose your hope for those who seem like they're too far gone to turn around. This salvation stuff is God's stuff. It's not their stuff. It's God's stuff. If he wants them, he's going to get them. I like what John Piper has said. He says, conversion is a work of sovereign grace where God moves in our lives and surprises us with joy. Years before John Piper, there was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Conversion is a great and glorious work of God's power, at once changing the heart and infusing life into the dead soul. That's pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? The turnaround that we all need, that's God's doing. He's the one who planned it. He's the one who worked throughout history to make the path straight for the coming Messiah. He's the one who sent Jesus to the cross to bear the weight and the burden and the punishment of our sin. And he's the one that miraculously raised him back to life. And he's the one who awakens the souls of sinners to respond to his call in faith. And that response, that turnaround, it can come suddenly, drastically, dramatically, unexpectedly, even in those who are passionately fighting against their Savior. It's all God. Finally, Saul's turnaround, it was a long time coming. We already pointed out that Saul had a track record. It's why the believers in Jerusalem were afraid of him. It's why the people in the synagogue were just scratching their heads and said, this guy? Wait, he was doing this, now he's doing that? It's why Ananias hesitated when God called him. 
But even before he went on his reign of terror, right after Stephen's death, Saul was lost before then. You see, Saul was convinced that, that by living better and by obeying a certain code of ethics and a certain set of rules and, and, and even having the right connections, that he was going to somehow achieve, merit God's approval, meet God's standard here, and earn his way into heaven. He, he told us in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, that is confidence in this life, and what I've accomplished in this life, he says, if anyone has reason to be uh, confident, it's me. All signs point right here. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's what Jewish kids do. Other people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a, a Pharisee. You don't get more perfect than that. As to zeal, oh, I was zealous. Persecutor of the church. I wasn't one of those Jews that just sat back at home and, you know, tried to live a good life and go to synagogue and do all those things. No, I was out there. I was, I was taking it to the streets and I was rounding those people up. I was waving the flag. Persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one could point the finger at me. How many people do you know who think that they're doing just fine. There are a lot of them out there. Maybe it's you. Living by some type of, of moral code. Doing things that, that, that you think are, are, are noble. Even fighting for causes that you think are, are right and good. And yet if you haven't been forgiven your sin and been made right with your creator through Christ, who was very, very clear is the only way to God. You don't have it. Maybe you looked at others and you thought, you know, it's, it's just been too long. Too, too much water under the bridge. <laughs> too much has happened. Maybe you looked at your own life and you said, you know, if you knew my past, if you took out the history of me and put it before you, you'd say, nah, God will throw this fish back. If I was going to turn to Jesus, you know, it would happen a long time ago. Maybe you're that person. You look at your life and you say, I've, I've gone too far. Remember Saul? And his story. And remember that his story was not just for him. His story is for you. That's what he tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, says Saul, says Paul. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save and Saul says, I am the foremost. Doesn't get worse than me. But I receive mercy for this reason. Here's the reason. Do you want to know it? That in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The point, if God's patience is big enough for Saul, the foremost of sinners, it's big enough for you. And it's big enough for the people on your list who you think will never come around. There's a man named John. John uh, went out to sea. And like so many sailors, John found himself uh, neck deep in all the things that sailors do. The swearing, the drinking, the running after every one of your heart's desires, especially one in port. The path that he walked eventually led him to serve on slave ships. And John did the sort of things that you and I think about these days. Most people in our our world think about these days and say, that is despicable. That is horrible. That's stomach-turning stuff. He'd capture people, beat them, haul them across the sea, sell them to wealthy plantation owners in the New World. John wasn't without his ups and downs. Uh, he, at his low point, he actually was a slave himself for a period of time. But the day came when John became the captain of his own slave ship. Things were going pretty well for John. Until one day. Through a storm, through a book that he was reading, God's call came on his life. John would go on to be one of those powerful leaders in the 18th century Christian movement in England. On his tombstone are the words that John himself wrote. And it says this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel in Libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John and Saul's, of course, uh, these these are just two stories among countless stories where God has come in and turned people completely around and demonstrated his limitless power. Is your story among them? If you've not placed your trust in Jesus, now's the time to do that. Confess your sin and say, God, my creator, I have not been walking with you. I have offended you by the way I have lived my life, by the way I've thought my thoughts and the words that have come out of my mouth. I know there's something, something's not right here. 
but I know that you sent Jesus Christ to take the punishment of my sin in my place, pay for it in full, that I might receive all that he has accomplished. Be washed clean, be forgiven. And just say, Lord, I, I, I trust in you. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me yours. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I want my life to be all about knowing, loving, and trusting in you. Give me a hope in the future. If you've already placed your trust in Jesus, let the light of Christ within you shine. Just let it shine. We like to hide it under the little bushel, right? Like that old song says. Why? What, are we afraid what people are going to think? Let it shine. It's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. Let it shine to those who need it. Share with them. Pray for them. Don't give up on them. Because God didn't give up on you. And God can turn around any soul if he turned around this guy named Saul. Father, we are so in awe of you. We turned against you. Your word is so clear on that. It started at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, our parents, and we, we line up right underneath them and do the very same thing. We go our own way. We go astray, Lord. We've wandered. And we're in darkness and in need of help, in need of a Savior. And you, throughout all of human history, were making the path for Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Father, if there is somebody here, or somebody listening online, Lord, who does not know you, who does not have that hope, who feels maybe that they're too far gone or too out of step, it's been too long Lord, call them to yourself. Give them faith to believe. Make them new. Bring them from death to life like we will have demonstrated before us in a few minutes as we go up front and witness baptisms, Lord. And for those of us who do know you, Father, fill us with zeal. A zeal similar to that of Saul, Lord, uh, but a zeal that is all about promoting Christ in this world because you, he is alone the hope of the world. May we boldly, faithfully proclaim Jesus and never give up on those who you may be calling to yourself. We love you and we thank you for this time and your word. In Jesus' name. Amen.